Again, thank you for joining Adam Schindler tonight. If you want to get connected to our study, you can click study to text the word study to 770-746-8388. So, all right. Well, tonight, let's just jump into it here with my little announcements. Bring down my music. So we are going to cover the second part of the uh, the thing that I began last week was um, talking in Genesis about how the Lord made us valuable, vulnerable, and imperfect. And one of the keys to that was understanding this different way that God had created man in his image. And last week we talked about in his image and what that in his image meant. Uh, specifically about the shadow um, that we talked about. The the shadow is um, a representation of the substance, but not the substance itself. So I showed you that picture of the camels up on the hillside, and the sun was shining over the camels, and there was the shadow of the camels. And that's an, that's an ancient image. Uh, well, not that particular camel image, but the idea of a shadow is a metaphor that was employed uh, prior to the days of Jesus by a guy named Plato that talked about the shadow and the myth of the cave. And it's a regular image to talk uh, specifically about some of these things um, and that we were made in God's image. Uh, and that word image has a lot to do, and it's the word that that is used for idols. So when the Lord says, don't make um, graven images, he's telling humans, don't make images of the God. You're the image. You're my representation. You're the shadow of me on the earth. Um, and so we talked about that last week. But I mentioned something in specific that God... Um, when he said, let us make man in our image, and I talked about that uh, as a reference to the Trinity. And um, I did say that the writer of Genesis was not referring to the Trinity because that was a New Testament theological construct. Uh, the writer had something else in mind, but I didn't talk about that. And then somebody asked me, um, uh, because he's read some same, same materials, uh, about the divine council uh, during the Q&A. And I, and I realized, man, I really should have talked about that. So I'm going to do that uh, tonight. So we're going to get a quick little look at the divine council in the scriptures about the community that God lived in. And then we're going to jump into the last piece of valuable, vulnerable, and imperfect and talk about perfection or imperfection. So this will uh, inevitably become a counseling session for me when I talk about perfectionism and maybe some of you also get ready to deal with your stuff tonight, everybody. But so first... Though, I want to look at, again, this piece of the puzzle here in Genesis one twenty six. So, let's reread this here. This is Genesis one twenty six through 27. Um, verse 26. Then the Lord said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All right, so it's clear from the scripture that there's a plurality here. And, and I made the point last week that, that God never existed outside of community. And that's an important piece of the puzzle for us because, you know, the Western isolated atomized 
kind of separated culture that many of us live in and grown up in. Um, we don't recognize just the power of community and the cultural context, but it's a lot deeper than just the cultural reality of the days of the authors of the scriptures and even in the New Testament days of Jesus. Uh, there, there are deep, significant understandings in the text related to redemption. Um, the whole concept of redemption is built into a patriarchal and patrilineal descent uh, system where we understand that being redeemed meant being put back into the family of God, the bet of the family um, unit. Uh, and and I'll probably talk about that in more specifics here. Uh, if we keep going through Genesis, we'll talk about that when we get um, a little bit further down the road. But the whole idea of living in community wasn't just about not being with your extended family or being with your extended family. It was also about, it was wrapped up into the whole concept of being connected to, to each other and ultimately to God. And because we're made in the image of God, this is one of the fundamental realities of who God is and how God relates to um, the other, how we say, I guess, the cast of characters. And so um, I hesitated to go into the divine council uh, because it, 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 for people that have never heard of it and beginning to look at a supernatural worldview um, of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew uh, authors and the Hebrew culture, um, the first look into that, if you've been raised in a theological New Testament Reformed tradition like I was, it, it takes quite a lot of quite a lot of reframing of things to begin to think about what I'm going to talk about tonight. So um, that's my one disclaimer. If I leave some things out or things are incomplete, uh, I recognize I won't be able to give it a full treatment, but I wanted to at least look at it. And I'll give you some resources at the end so you can continue your studies in it if you want to know more. So um, that's my caveat. So there is something in the scripture called the divine council, and um, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at I'm looking at notes. I'm going to put away the chat. Good chat, Peter. We're going to talk about Michael, um, but it was distracting. That's my own problem. Um, so. We're going to talk about the Divine Council, and uh, a lot of this material comes from a guy, Michael Heiser, or Heisner. I never know how to say his name. I always want to call him the, uh, the worship leader, Helzer, but that's not it. Michael Heiser, I think. But he has the Naked Podcast, and I'm talking about this because someone, I forget who it was, asked me about them last week. Um, but the Divine Council uh, is an important... Um, understanding in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Torah, and in the, the, the Old Testament that lays out the way that the Hebrew people understood um, who God was. And the primary verse here for this, uh, there's a whole lot more to develop it, but the, the crux of this is taken out of Psalm 82 verse 1. And it says this, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. All right, so if you listen to Michael uh, Helzer, or Hes, Hes, Hesner, I wish I knew how to say it. Someone told me there's no L. Uh, Heiser, Michael Heiser, thank you. I'm going to say it right, um, if I've said it right. But 
he talks specifically, and he's a PhD, really smart guy that that looks into the languages of all of this stuff um, specifically. But here, the first word God here, and this is Elohim, the word Elohim. And the word Elohim in the scripture gets translated in a variety of ways. Um, oftentimes, it refers to or it gets translated as God in the singular, but there is a tense um, that also means that it's a plural. So the Elohim doesn't necess- doesn't refer to a God in particular. It refers, the Elohim are a reference to a class or a category or divine beings. So when, when the scriptures say God, like the capital G-O-D in our English language, when we see a capitalized G as believers in Jesus, we look at that and we say, oh, this name, God, is referring to a specific entity that has a list of natural, or has a list of attributes and character um, conditions so that we know that God is all-loving and all-kind and all-powerful and, you know, attach whatever um, beliefs you have about God to that name. Right, but Elohim does not refer to a singular entity named Elohim. It is a word that refers to a divine being. Okay, and so in this particular passage uh, here, I'm going to go back to the full screen on this and see if I can annotate this. This particular passage here, the the ESV version does a good job of annotating the fact that this is a um, this is a singular. And a plural. So what it's saying here is that God, and this is a reference, this Elohim, who is known by his name as Yahweh, the one who is embodied, um, the yad Hey vav Hey, Yahweh, God, the Elohim, singular, has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohims, the plural gods, he holds judgment. So what's that saying in the midst of of um, a variety of other gods, other heavenly beings, okay? It's not talking about other Yahwehs, other singular gods. Beside him, there is no other Elohim, God, Yahweh, the name of God. He's not saying that he's in the midst of a bunch of other Yahwehs. He's saying that there is a divine council. There is a community of heavenly beings that the, that the, that the Hebrew authors and the Hebrew people understood um, that God was the head of a group of people that were working in concert with Yahweh, the Elohim, singular head of that group, and it was called the Divine Council. Okay, and there is a lot of evidence in the scripture. I'm just going to scratch the surface, and I will encourage you uh, to go out um, and do some more studies on this. But here's another uh, great verse that lays this out for us. This is Psalm 89, 5-7. It says this, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. This is Psalm 89, 5-8. Alright, so this is the part that's going to kill me because I just don't have time tonight to lay this all out and we'll point you towards Michael Heiser's stuff. Because he does this, unpacks it really well. Um, I'm just going to assert 
and you can go and study this out. But many translators, when they look at this, they call this, um, they reference the, the fact that who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? You know, um, or uh, the assembly of the holy ones in verse five is talking about, you know, maybe they, they say that references humans and the holy ones of Israel or the people, the people that are priests, or there's some other exegetical interpretive tools that they do to put humans in this passage. But the, the text is pretty clear in the way that it's laid out. Uh, that these are not humans, and they can't be humans. These are Elohims. These are kinds of Elohims. But more specifically here, uh, we want to look at verse 6, because verse 6 here gets translated a little funny. And this is one of those instances when there's some, well, whatever the bias is or not understanding in the English translators. But in verse 6, when it says, Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord, to Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? This word heavenly beings here is bene Elohim, and that means the sons of God. Okay, so who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of God is like the Lord? Now, is this talking specifically about humans? Are, are, are humans the sons of God? Um. You know, or is this just saying, oh, well, the humans, you know, we're God's son, we're God's daughter, we're sons and daughters of God, we know that from the New Testament, so he's just saying here that humans are not like God at all. Well, no, the translator of this ESV version at least understood that it's, that it's a heavenly being, humans are not a heavenly being, okay, but, but they call it just sort of generically, uh, you know, a heavenly being. But specifically, this term, sons of God, references a certain kind of created being in the scriptures, and they appear many different times in other biblical texts. Genesis 6, verse 2, and verse 4 in particular. This is the passage when these sons of God go into the daughters of men, um, and, and they make men of renown, the Nephilim. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to do a teaching on the Nephilim. But read Genesis 6 if you're into um, very strange and exciting Bible verses. We, we may get there. I think it's an interesting, an interesting topic. There's lots written about it, and lots goes weird when you start talking about the Nephilim. But Genesis 6, it certainly references that. Job 1, verse 6, Job 2, verse 1, Job 38, verse 7, they all talk about the sons of God. And Michael Heiser lays out why these are not talking about humans. This is another kind of heavenly um, being. It is an Elohim. It is not the God, the singular God. Okay, and then Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 and 43, that's a particularly important passage that also talk about the sons of God. Now, you may be wondering, I'm going to change slides here. You may be wondering here, um, like, I thought, I thought, the Jewish people were monotheists, right? Um, and, and, whoops, wrong one. And, you know, certainly as Christians, we're monotheists, although the Jewish, a lot of the Jewish uh, rabbis and Orthodox accuse us of being polytheists because we cling to this idea of the Trinity. But we need to adjust our, our vision of, um, 
monotheism. The, the term monotheism is something that was created in the 17th century by a, by a, uh, a Catholic um, priest, or um, I figured it was an archbishop or somebody. Uh, but it, was come, it comes out of the, the Latin Vulgate translation, and it's this idea of one God, and that there are no such things in, in your mind. Maybe we thought that to say that you're a monotheist or a monotheist means that you believe there's only one God, and there's no such thing as other gods in existence at all. And so the idea that kind of creeps in, if you, if you think that monotheism is about the fact that there's only one God, there's, there's never been any other gods, there's no other kinds of heavenly or, or other kinds of spiritual beings besides that one singular entity, then this, what I'm saying here would be pretty confusing, right? Because I'm saying that there are, in the Scriptures— other entities, the sons of God, for one, uh, that are created beings, the Scripture makes that clear, and that they are with God, and that there is some of the sons of God fell along with Satan, the accuser, Lucifer, um, and did a number of very bad things inside of Genesis chapter 6. So, what I'm arguing for here, or what I'm trying to articulate, I guess is a better way of saying it, is that the, the Old Testament scriptures are very clear that there are other kinds of spiritual beings besides Yahweh, the one who is embodied, the singular one from whom we worship, okay? And that there is a very well, very well developed orthodox interpretation of the scripture and worldview of the ancient world that had Yahweh as the supreme being in charge of a divine council of other heavenly beings where they operated in a capacity to make decisions and create things. Okay? So I'm going to show you a couple more of these pieces. But I do want to just make this disclaimer. Uh, I am not arguing for... I'm not arguing. That's not even a word. Um, I'm not arguing for polytheism. By saying there are other gods, Elohim, besides Yahweh, the singular Elohim, um, I'm not saying or advocating that there are multiple gods that we worship. We are monotheists, monotheists, we worship the one true God, but there are other gods both that vie for our affection, um, other Elohim, a lot of those are demonic realms, um, but other gods and other class of sons of God. So I want to lay out here for you this, this three-tiered divine council structure that comes out of the Old Testament. And so this is a, an orthodox vision of what's laid out in the scriptures here is the, the first tier is Yahweh, and he is the supreme authority over a divine bureaucracy. I'm going to show you a few more um, passages that, that lay this out for us. The second tier... Um, or a class, uh, sometimes those language, the tier, the hierarchy, um, can get difficult. But but God sits, Yahweh sits atop the, the, the divine council as the one with supreme authority. The second are the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim. Okay, and these, these are created beings that show up at a lot of different places in the scripture. Um, and then the third, third thing that we see a lot of are the angels, the Malachim, 
So these are the ones that we are hopefully familiar with in our New Testament studies. Um, and there was a few years ago that the Lord started talking to me about the angelic realms, and and I was not I'm not, I was not interested in in learning about angels, you know, because all I knew about angels were what 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 my weird like prophetic intercessor friends would talk about. You know, they saw an angel and they worked with an angel. And then, you know, I grew up in the 80s and, you know, Michael Landon's Touched by an Angel uh, show was something I watched a lot. And so I just saw this big flowy hair, Michael Landon, uh, when I thought about angels. And, you know, maybe if I was a teenage girl, I would want to be more interested in angels. But I wasn't. I was a teenage boy. And I that's just what I thought of. But the Lord began to talk to me about understanding and working with the angelic. And I was like, Ugh. so I did what I always do and what I recommend that you do when you feel like the Lord's speaking to you about something. If the Lord's revelation that you have an intimate connection with the voice of God, if he begins to talk to you about a particular thing that you don't understand, don't shut down that, that perception that you have that maybe this is God. Always test that. But the very first thing that you do if God starts talking to you about a particular thing is that you open up your scriptures and you look for that particular thing, right? So God started talking to me about angels. I didn't want to listen to that. And so, but I was like, all right, I'm going to pay attention. I opened up my Bible and I word searched angels. And for weeks, for weeks, I um, looked at uh, studies of angels. And I saw that there was over 80-some encounters in the Old Testament and the New Testament of, of characters in the Bible having face-to-face or um, verbal interactions with angels. And it wasn't, it wasn't references to angels like poetry in the Psalms. Uh, it was specific people encountering and having human to heavenly being interaction with this category of creatures called angels, messengers in the scripture. So there's a lot in this little slide right here um, that there is from a, from a scriptural perspective, there is a lot to go and pursue to ask the Lord about what are these different categories of heavenly beings and what is the counsel of God, the divine counsel that these beings seem to be engaged in and connected to. So let me give you a few more scriptures here, okay? Um, there is a whole lot more, but I think we need a few more. All right, I'm seeing a, uh, a comment over on Facebook that I'm not making clear that God created all the other spiritual beings. Um, yeah, I, I called the sons of God created beings. Uh, it is clear that God was the one that created all the heavenly beings. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the creator of these heavenly beings, these other council members. Um, I did say that God is uh, not an Elohim that sits among other Elohims in the sense that Yahweh is there with a bunch of other Yahwehs. He is the singular, stood-out head and supreme creative power underneath all of the other heavenly 
uh, beings and archetypes and um, entities. Uh, I'm not going to get into a real detailed articulation of demonology and the different layers of, of dark spirits and evil spirits and fallen suns, and you know, there's a lot out there. But I did want to expose um, you all to the biblical reality that God created other kinds of heavenly creatures. It appears from the reading of the scriptures. And I'm more interested in what what does the text say as best we can understand it, putting it in its Hebrew context, in its original context, and working to understand the language outside of our own theological biases. That's not an easy thing to do. We often need help. I need help, and I get quite a bit of help from um, friends and from my studies. So... um, so yes, good good statement, Jason. Um, needed to clarify that for sure. So let's take a look at one other thing here. Well, it's a couple of other things here, but um, about how the council operates. So this is First Kings twenty two nineteen through twenty three, and um, we'll just read this together. Micaiah and Micaiah said. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Go and look at the context of this. Um, I'm not proof texting it, but I'm not doing context. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. Okay, so I'm just going to stop there. It starts with the Lord sitting on his throne. Okay, and when, when the Lord sits down on his throne, that is a place of judgment. That is a place of authority. Okay, that is a spot where now we know that there is, a, there is a seated from behind the dais, so to speak, in the Supreme Court. You know, I've been into the Supreme Court a handful of times and have a cool picture of, you know, the, the, the bench. Those are thrones, okay? Those are seats of authority that when they sit down behind those seats of authority, they've got a particular weight that they don't carry when they're not seated. So when it says the Lord is sitting on his throne, he is ready to do um, to to execute judgment, which means to make a judgment about what is right and about what is wrong and about what to do. And we see that all the host of heaven is standing beside him on his right and his left. So the scriptures say here that there is other hosts, other heavenly beings of some kind uh, that are surrounding. Yahweh, who is seated in a place of judgment. And this is the dialogue, the discussion that they have. Verse 20, and the Lord says, Yahweh, the the head of the divine council, says, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall in Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. All right, so um, here is, you know, the old phrase, Two Jews, three opinions. Um, you know, this is this is a dialogue, right? This is people are coming back and forth. These divine beings around a throne where a judge is seated on a throne, there's other heavenly hosts around there, and they're having a discussion. One saying one thing, one saying another. This looks like a courtroom or some kind of deliberation. Okay, in this moment. All right, verse 21. And then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh, the Lord, the head of the divine council, and says, I'll do it. I'll entice him. Verse 22, and the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out 
and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And, and he, Yahweh, said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so now. Verse 23, therefore behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. All right, so the operations here of this, and, and there is more context, but the larger context of, of what this story is and what happens in the, in the book of Kings, it doesn't detract from this moment that we're looking at, specifically trying to peel back what the scriptures talk about, how a divine council is operating. Now, so we get the judge who is seated on a throne, and that's Yahweh. He is the divine judge, the head of the divine council. Um, the next thing that we see is deliberation. So they're going back and forth. They're having a council meeting in this capacity. They're talking about what it is that they want to do. Very much like in Genesis, when the Lord said, let us make them in our image, right? He's saying he's deliberating with the council. And he's saying, what do you want to do in a, in a sense? Let's make them in our image. Let's do this, okay? And then, Someone, they deliberate, and somebody stands up and offers an idea. Okay, a spirit says, I'll go and do it. And, and Yahweh says, all right, so how are you going to do that? And he says, I'll know what I'll do. I'll go put a lying spirit. I'll be a lying spirit. So I'll whisper lies to him, and the prophets uh, will just hear the lies in the spirit. And this is a big test for the prophets of Israel, whether or not they can discern the difference between a lying spirit and the voice of Yahweh, their God. And God says, all right, you're to go and entice him. But look at this. When we get here, who put the lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets? The Lord. But who is actually putting the lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets? Well, this other divine council member, this spirit that stood up and said, I'm going to go and do this. So this is key to the deliberative process, um, that the judge is seated on the throne. He's got full authority to operate and administrate this heavenly council. There's debate. One rises with the primary idea. There's a challenge to the question. There's a clarification. And then there is a agreement and release to that particular entity to go and do what is being done. And when the Lord repeats what he has done, he doesn't say, and one of the council members put a lying spirit in the mouth. He says, this is the judgment of the council. It carries the weight of Yahweh. The Lord is the one that put these in the mouth of your prophets. Okay, so this is um, uh, this is an interesting look at the way that the heavenly council uh, operates. All right, and I see I see a question here, uh, and this is sort of the next little piece that I wanted to look at. Um, and we're tracking okay on time here. I got about fifteen twenty more minutes. The Lord said. In Genesis, let us make man in our image, in the image of man. And then he talks about male and female. And there's so many layers to that, and I don't have time for all of that. But part of what he was doing was, I, I said last time generally that God made us for community. 
Okay, but I believe that there is also another reality to this. Okay, and it comes from this understanding of the divine council that God sits in the midst of as the head and these other divine beings. The picture that emerges here is that in Eden, when God made us in his image, we were made to commune with and participate in the divine council. This access was lost in the rebellion. How was it redeemed? Big statement. Implications for this. Okay? Um, The question is, or the statement is, is that our participation in the deliberative process with God on how to best rule and subdue um, creation, to husband creation, that part of our job as image-bearing rulers in the earth is to participate in a dialogue, in a back-and-forth dialogue with God about how best to administrate the creation that he made and that we are part of God's administration, okay? And um, we can see a couple of images of this. Uh, I'm going to show you a couple of them as well. Uh, one in particular is this moment at Sinai when Moses goes up onto the mountain, and God is angry because they just sinned at the golden calf altar, and he wants to take them all out. And the Lord is angry, and he's, he's like, I'm going to take them all out. And then Moses intercedes for him. He says, Lord, what would the people in the nations think, that you brought them all out here just to kill them in the desert? And God's like, I'm done. I'm starting over. And Moses intercedes. And then the scripture says, and the Lord relented. Okay, how does Moses get to go up and have a dialogue with God that gets God to relent, to, to change his mind? I thought God was never changing. Well, you begin to see with this concept of the scriptures, of the divine council, that God, the Yahweh, is the head of a council of heavenly created beings that he created, and that humanity was part of that image-bearing council in the beginning, in, in Eden. And you can see this, I mean, I could trail this all the way into the book of Revelation, right? All the way, all the way there. The new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem is seated on the, the it comes down and it's on 12 pillars, right? And these are the uh, apostles that followed God around. The entire new Eden that is a city, the earthly project of man ruling and subduing was only a garden because we rebelled and were divorced from the presence of God before we were able to cultivate the land and create a city. But in Revelation, it's now a city. It's still a garden with a tree and a river and everything, but um, it is a city. It's progressed. Okay, And the 12 apostles are the pillars and the 12 disciples. We are the pillars that hold up the Eden, the new heaven and the new earth that is coming. Um, when there is no temple and there is no sun, I'm getting way ahead of myself. Um, so let me just show you a couple of other pieces here. So If you can buy this premise, and there is a lot to be developed, I'm introducing this concept to you. I recognize there's a lot to be developed here, okay? And I'll give you some resources at the end of this. Um, But we lost our access in the fall or the rebellion, okay? But 
This is the beginning of a through line. Redemption begins in the garden because, and it was written into the fabric of the way that the earth was created. And the question is, how do we get redeemed from our image-bearing place to image out the glory of God and to be so connected with the eternal God, the tree of life, that we are walking in the cool of the day with the voice of the Lord, participants in his divine counsel, to, to take counsel with the Lord to execute his will on the earth, to rule and subdue and husband creation. Like, this is what we've been made for. We gave it up, and we're going to talk about this in the, in the coming weeks, about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The question is, how is it redeemed? Okay, well, if we remember this picture, you guys remember this picture from a couple of weeks ago? You know what this is? This is Moses' tabernacle, right? Does anyone else know another name for this tabernacle? It came to be known as the Tent of Meeting, right? Why was it called the Tent of Meeting? Well, because that's the place, the tent that they went in and met. Who? Moses. With who? God. Okay, And all throughout the ancient cultures, there are stories, and embedded in other religions are, are, I think, counterfeits in some capacity, but these other religions have divine councils as well. With the pantheon of gods, uh, the, the Hebrew divine council is very different, but the fact that there is one is not different. But all these other religions, they had meeting places, and they were tents, and they were up on mountains, and they were in walled gardens, uh, protected by rivers and mountains. And this was a common recurring theme. And so God's redemptive story begins by establishing back into the earth, the garden, the tent of meeting, okay? He puts a place on the earth where there is access, again, guarded access, heavily guarded access to the tree of life, but access to the tree of life, and it's called the tent of meeting. And here is just a quick rundown. This, again, is an allusion to the seven-day creation story, which is a temple story or a tabernacle story. The seven elements of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the altar on the outside, the basin on the outside, the lampstand to the left, the showbread to the right, the incense, the veil, and the divine presence. So all of these things are inside the tent of meeting, and they lead people. Everything in here is done so that humanity could come back into an encounter with the divine presence. This is what this whole thing was all about, returning humanity, giving them access again. And so you come into the tabernacle, God reestablishes. The first thing you do is submit to God and you offer a burnt offering, a sacrifice. Then you'd go to the bronze basin, the laver, lavalier, the sea, the bronze sea, and that's a cleansing, a washing. Then you enter in through the curtains into the holy place. If you're a priest and there's a lampstand, and that is the light of the word, the illumination, the miraculous provision of oil and There's the showbread and sustenance, and then you get up right next to the veil, the separation between heaven and earth. Humanity's 
threshold with their experience and encounter with God, and that's where worship and prayer happens, rising up to God. The veil is the threshold. It's the heavens. It's the firmament that I talked about. And then inside the holy of holies, the most holy place, there are the angels that are guarding the presence of God, the shakan, the dwelling place. And Moses can again meet with God. It's not a divine council meeting, but it's an invitation back into an encounter to hear the word of the Lord. These are returns. This is the beginning. The tabernacle is the beginning of the redemptive process of God pulling people back into that place with him. Okay? I'm going to totally run out of time, man. So we're not going to cover everything. Um, Maybe we just do divine counsel tonight. Uh, Here's another great passage. This is Isaiah. Look at this. This is, this is someone else who encountered the divine council, and he was getting called up for something. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. There's that throne again, a place of judgment, place of authority, and it's the Lord, Yahweh, the Elohim, the high Elohim, seated in a place of judgment on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Okay, so here we go. We see the same thing again that we saw in 1 Kings. The high Elohim, Yahweh, is seated on his throne, and he's in the temple, the tabernacle. He's in the Holy of Holies. Isaiah gets pulled into the Holy of Holies to see the divine Elohim, Yahweh, seated on a throne. And this is that was verse 1, and here's the next part after the three dots is verse 8. And he sees, or and Isaiah says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. So this is Isaiah's call to the, to the prophetic ministry, but more than that, to the office of the prophet. And the prophet in the Old Testament was, a, was, was probably the most powerful office because they spoke for God as God on the earth. So it's important that when we see that Isaiah gets his call and then he falls down, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and God takes the coals from the altar. That is the spot, I just showed you the picture, when he takes the coals, that's the altar, the fire that's right up against the threshold of the heavens, that is the incense and the prayer to God. He takes the incense and the prayers of the altar and he cleanses the lips of the unclean mouth of Isaiah. And that is the call into speaking the words of God with the worship and prayer at the very threshold of humanity's encounters with God. And he gets this call in the midst of a divine council meeting, it appears. Because the judge is seated on a throne, and they're in the temple, they're in the place, they're in a council room in this capacity, and there's a plurality that are going there for us. And we see that again. We saw it in 1 Kings. We see it in Genesis. We see it in Psalms 82 and 89. We see it in Isaiah 6, the plurality of God saying, let us go for us. So that is a very quick rendition of the divine council. There is more. Um, When this study is over, if you're watching this live um, by 7 p.m. Eastern time, 
you can go to my website, adamschindler.com, and you can click on this particular study or click on the menu button, Theology, and find this if you're not watching on YouTube or my website. And I will have PDF downloads there, both of my notes immediately following this, and also a PDF of a 22-page Bible uh, definition uh, printout of the Divine Council with all the references and hyperlinks that you can go and pursue all of this and study it out. Um, it's a, uh, it's a, it's in the Logos Bible software, this dictionary that comes out of it. And one of the major contributors to this entry is Michael Heiser. So I'll give you that as soon as the study is over, because I want you to pay attention to me right now and not go read PDFs on the internet. Um, so, Hopefully that's helpful, and there's great implications for that. And so we're going to come back uh, to a lot of this stuff as we begin to continue to work through the Scriptures. Um, and I'm seeing, uh, I'm seeing a handful of... Oh, I'm just going to skip the comments. Great comments tonight on YouTube. Michael, you're making some really good comments. Um, I just don't have time tonight to really go into that. So um, I'm going to keep going because I want to do perfection. My apologies for not being more interactive this evening. But, you know, Delta Airlines doesn't care about my Facebook followers. So, all right. So the last little piece here, I want to talk about imperfect. Okay, and um, that God made us valuable, vulnerable, and imperfect. These categories that I believe are helpful to understand how we've been made. Okay, and the last one here is imperfect. And the, this is a hard one, okay, because we're going to have to redefine some terms, okay? Um, and the reality is when you look at the tree of life, God puts a horrible choice in a perfect place, and he calls it good. Okay, and this is the part that I've never really understood, uh, that I didn't understand, and so I went after it. I'm like, what the heck is this? Uh, particularly once I became a father, right? And, and I mean, I was an anxious dad with my first child, and, you know, I was scared to death growing up, and, you know, I didn't want my kids to die. You know, that was, you know, that would look really bad on me as a dad if one of my kids, you know, if I, I have some friends that lost children, so I don't mean to make light of that. Um, but, but I remember thinking, you know, man, I remember cleaning up my garage one time when we were moving, uh, and, you know, I had this chainsaw, and, you know, my kids wanted to come out anywhere dad is. They want to come out, and there's, but there's spiders, and there's nails, and hammers, and chainsaws, but the garage is now clean, and that's where they want to ride their rollerblades, you know? And I remember thinking as I was pondering through a lot of this stuff, I'm like, man, I would not leave my chainsaw plugged in, turned on in the middle of the garage while my kids are out there playing and say, yeah, that's good. That's a perfect spot. It's a perfect spot for my kids to play right now. But the reality in the scripture is that God created a garden and he put something that was a mortal death object in the center of it. And it's like neon sign, don't touch this, don't touch this. This giant tasty looking thing in the middle that could totally destroy you and ruin everything that I've created I'm going to put it right in the middle and tell you not to touch it, and that's good, right? That's very good, actually, when he makes humanity. That's exactly what I wanted. 
And we looked at that last week when good doesn't mean without sin or morally, you know, morally pure. It means functioning as God designed it as intended. So when God said the garden was good, he said that it was good as he designed it and intended it for there to be something that would kill us in the very middle of what he made. And I've never understood that. And... Well, I've never understood that. But as you begin to think about what that could possibly mean is we need to begin to understand that God is not necessarily um, trying to keep us from doing bad things, right? He's not so much interested in making sure we don't ever make a mistake, Okay, and as a parent, I, I, I wrestle a little bit with this, you know, because I don't like mistakes. I'm a perfectionist, and mistakes mean that I am, well, a bunch of things, you know, bad, misinformed, um, exposed as a fraud, uh, not gifted, not talented, not worthy of a raise. Uh, there's a lot of things that start going through my anxious mind when I make mistakes. And coupled with a lot of those other sort of fleshly anxious things, I can start thinking about, oh, man, is God unhappy with me? Did I just make a mistake? Did I just sin? You know, is is this going to get me disqualified from heaven? Well, no, I got that settled, but, you know, will this get me disqualified from relationships? I just made a mistake. Um, and it creates this framework in my mind. But God actually said, here is an opportunity to make a horrible mistake. And I want to create a world in which you have that choice. So first, to understand choice, we need to understand the difference between a mistake and sin. Okay, and this is what I'm just going to have to rush through because I have 10 minutes and then I got to go. The idea of perfection. Okay, I love perfection. I'm a perfectionist. I think, I'm, I think that's pretty good. I'm proud of this. Um, but the biblical look at perfection and I'm not going to be able to go into this. I'm going to stop saying that. Uh, When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, at the end of a couple of those verses. He's not talking. The word perfection in the New Testament and in the Old Testament is more along the lines of wholeness and maturity versus making a mistake. Okay, and in my mind, perfection has always been not making a mistake. But biblically, perfection is about maturity and about wholeness. And if anybody's ever led teams or discipled people, some of the most valuable moments for perfection and wholeness and maturity are the mistakes. Right? Those are the moments where you get to see what people are made of and how they react and how they respond. And as a dad or a coach or a leader of organizations of any kind, you want people to make mistakes and then see how they react and respond to those mistakes. Now, a good leader wants to sort of limit the exposure. Like you don't want to put a new person who could melt down the nuclear reactor and say, let's see if you can learn something today. Right? You don't put them in charge of the thing that will kill everybody. God seemed to do that, but you give them a little chance. So biblically, perfection, when Jesus says, um, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, there's a lot of context, but that's about wholeness and maturity. So 
Another thing here is we've got to untangle the concept of sin and mistakes. Okay, this is pretty small, so I'm going to make this bigger. Um, All sin is a mistake, but not all mistakes are sin. Okay, and I'm I'm purposefully using English words here because this is part of our thinking that's got to be deconstructed, at least it was for me, that I needed to realize that mistakes weren't sin. Okay, making a mistake wasn't a sin and falling short of the glory of God because God made us with the capacity to make mistakes. He put a horrible choice in a perfect place and said, that's good, there's a capacity. Something else is going on there. But I remember thinking about Jesus. I'm like, okay, so Jesus was a tecton. The Bible says that he was a tecton, a stonemason, or it gets translated as carpenter, but there's no wood in Israel. You don't build with wood in Israel. You build with stone. And there was a very famous, well-known stone quarry just outside of Nazareth in Jesus' hometown that built the Roman cities for Caesar. So Jesus was probably a stonemason with his dad building roads or pagan temples. Imagine Jesus cutting stones to put in pagan temples or to pave the way for the Roman Caesars at their advent. Well, being a stonemason's not an easy job. And I can imagine Jesus as he's cutting, you know, cutting through a block, he strikes it at the wrong spot and the block splinters in the middle and he's ruined the block. And I don't know if that ever makes his dad mad, you know, before his dad is no longer in the picture or you know, at 12, he goes off and starts being a rabbi, teacher guy, or whatever that whole story is, or maybe goes to South America like the Mormons say. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> did Jesus ever make a mistake as a tecton? Did he ever strike a stone wrong and break it apart? Did he ever upset his foreman? Did he ever say a cross word? Um, you know, we don't know. But my picture of Jesus as perfect, sinless, meant that he is this anesthetized, nice little white, happy, shiny Jesus that just floats around and makes everything right and does everything just perfect. But that's not the biblical look at the scriptures. I mean, you look at Jesus that comes into the money changers and flips over the tables of the money changer and then grabs the corner of his talit, this like six inch little thing and gets up in the face and smacks the money changer six inches from their face with the corner of his talit saying, you've turned the house of the Lord into a den of vipers, right? This is an intimate, fierce encounter. You know, maybe that was a mistake. You know, I I don't know. My point is this, is that sin isn't misspeaking or messing up at work or doing something and you know, tripping or falling down or any of these things that, that we try and we fail and we make a mistake here, we misjudge the market or we, we say the wrong thing. Now, there are certainly things that we say that are absolutely sin, you know, and the, and the New Testament scriptures talk quite a bit about the things that come out of your mouth. But what I'm just trying to talk about is helping us uncouple the idea of sin, which is missing the mark of the glory that we've been made for, wholeness and, and spiritual maturity that the Bible calls perfection in the New Testament, that we're called to be whole and mature, but the journey to that process doesn't mean we're not going to make mistakes. And I think that it's important that we do not measure our connection to God by the metric of how many mistakes we've not made. Okay, that leads us into a works-based perfectionism that doesn't connect us to God. 
And obviously, Jesus never sinned, but sin is not making a mistake. So, I certainly like to think about, and maybe I'm a heretic for this, I don't think so, but I like to think about Jesus making a mistake at his job, you know, and that that's part of the human experience, to mess up, to make mistakes, but not sin. So, here's the other piece about understanding we're imperfect, and I think this is, this is, uh, this is a real like modern cultural look at the terms imperfection right now that I think are helpful for us. Maybe in a different cultural time, I'd change the phrase from perfection and imperfection to something else. But our culture elevates the flawless human form and calls it perfect. You know, I, I thought about showing some, um, some great Photoshop fails of magazine covers of people when they... <laughs> You know, everything's photoshopped and airbrushed, and it's, it's just ludicrous. Uh, and there's some pretty funny ones, but none of them are that appropriate, so I didn't show them. Um, but our culture elevates perfection, and perfection for them means flawless, like there's no blemishes, and there's no dimples, and there's a certain type, there's a certain size of waist or size of chest or size of bicep or whatever it is. Like we, we manufacture a flawless body using digital tools, and then we call that perfect. Okay. And the reality is that we're not perfect. Nobody's flawless. And that's an idealized shape. Okay, and that God made us imperfect in that capacity. I'm playing on the words here a little bit now, and here I'm not saying perfect is sinless. Okay, so God made us imperfect. We have flaws, we can make mistakes. There's a capacity for us to do horrible things, and God made us that way. Now, He doesn't want us to make horrible choices, but we have that capacity. Now, on the other side of this in culture, one side of culture elevates the flawless, um, Im, the, the flawless image and calls it perfect. The other side of culture is moral relativity, and moral relativity denies the whole concept of mistakes, okay, and flaws and perfection. Why? How does moral relativity deny that there are such things as mistakes? Well, this is a concept called subjectivism, that if, it's, if subjectivism means that if I believe something's right, then I'm right in doing it. It's a morally relative world where the ethics and morals, those aren't the same thing, but I'm going to use them together, where ethics and morals are relative based on my own opinions and feelings about things, and if I think something is right, then I'm right in doing it. Now, what that means there is that there's no such thing as a mistake, because mistakes are dependent on a standard that's outside yourself. Okay? And so, to be imperfect means necessarily by definition that there's a standard outside of me that is holding up a line of perfection or wholeness or moral truth or clarity. So, part of embracing our imperfection is recognizing that there is someone who is holding up the standard. There isn't a flawless human, but there is a flawless standard in this capacity, and God made us to be in connection intimately forever with that standard so that we can become mature and we can become whole. 
And this is just really helpful for me, and I hope it's helpful for you, um, and it doesn't scroll you out into like weird places. Um, but the last piece that I want to talk about here is connected here to imperfection. Um, and this ultimately is the difference between the tree of life, eating from the tree of life, and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for our next study, I'm going to get into that in detail. But what the ability to make a bad choice offers us the ability, the reality that we are imperfect, that we can make mistakes, and that we have a choice. This choice offers us freedom. And the very concept of freedom requires that there be a choice because fundamentally there's no compulsion in love. Love that is demanded and required or else is not love. Okay? You can have... I don't know if it's Stockholm Syndrome, if that's the right name of it, or the, the, the person that gets connected to the captor uh, that's holding them in bondage. Um, that's not love. It's a, it's a cheap, well, it's a painful substitute or, um, uh, well, substitute for love, but it's not love. And the whole concept, and I have a philosophy degree, and we talked about this in metaphysics, and I loved that class, and we just argued for weeks about freedom and predestination, and it was great. But the, and there's lots of different theories of freedom, but the, the, the best one, the one that I believe is right, is the fact that freedom requires a minimum of two viable options at any given moment. Now, we may be driven or compelled by desire to choose one option over the other, and that's when you get into some interesting discussions. But freedom requires that there be two viable options. And so the reality of what God put in the garden here when he puts this horrible choice in a perfect place, a whole place, a mature place, is that he's saying and he's signaling out to humanity and the writers of Genesis and the Hebrew understanding was very clear. We have the choice to love God or not. And when we stay connected to the tree of life, we live. When we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we die. The reality is is that choice allows for love. And God came for the love of his creation, not for the servanthood of his creation. And herein separates out Yahweh, the great Elohim, from all the other Elohims, is that he is coming because he wants to have intimate, daily, tangible connection and love with his creation, not to make them all servants to his divine needs. Because if you have a king that's a pharaoh, then you don't have freedom of choice because what pharaoh says goes. But God was so committed to this idea of love that he put a horrible choice in a perfect place and said, this is exactly what I want. Because unless they have a viable option to get what they want for themselves without reference to me, then they'll never love and know me. So choice allows for love. And I'm going to unpack more of this, but I'm going to wrap it up here. But choice also allows for destruction and separation, okay? Because it's a genuine choice, and this is freedom. You can love and receive the blessings, or you can disconnect and receive the curses, okay? Those are viable options in any given moment. And I think a healthy marriage recognizes that you are only a handful of poor decisions away from some of the most darkest things that you think you would never do. 
And if you're naive to the reality that there's always a viable choice to fall into death and destruction and adultery and pornography and all the different kinds of things that will pull you out of an intimate relationship. Unless you know that that is a viable option in every scenario, then you walk into the world unaware. And this is some of what happened with Adam and Eve. And we're going to get into this next week or the week after because I'll be traveling next week. Okay, so choice allows for love, but it also allows for destruction. All right, but choice elevated to an Elohim becomes idolatry, all right? And we see that in our culture for certain. Freedom of choice, right? What is that the rallying cry of? Well, freedom of choice is the rallying cry of child sacrifice that gets elevated to the role of a god. And now we're servants to the thing that God gave us to know him, and we have now replaced the one who gave us the choice with choice as the God. And this is what idolatry does, is it replaces the God who gave us the option and creates the option as the God. So this is what's moving in our culture. And the reality here is that true freedom is actually radical dependence, not independence. Okay? Freedom isn't saying, I'll do whatever I want. Freedom is the choice to choose life but that we are totally dependent upon that choice to choose life. A great picture of this is the idea of a, of a, of a goldfish that's on a fishbowl in a stand. This makes me think of like a far side cartoon or something, you know. A fish is in the stand or on a stand in a fishbowl, and he's raging against his tiny little bowl, and he's so sick of the water, and he's so tired, so tired of living in the water. And so he decides to declare his independence from the fishbowl, and he jumps out of the fishbowl onto the carpet and dies. You know, but he declared his independence. Well, he's a fish, and he's got to live in water. Now, if he jumped out of the fishbowl into the bathtub or into a pond or into the ocean of God's love, that's where he actually finds freedom. But he doesn't declare his independence from water. He declares his radical dependence on something much bigger than the little world that he could get for himself. Okay? This is freedom, a radical dependence on the immensity of the love of God, not in never making a mistake or being perfect, okay? It is declaring your independence from self and declaring your radical dependence on the immensity of the love of God. So in conclusion, valuable, God made us and the garden good, and the humanity was a husband, as husbands was very good that God created us functioning in our full capacity and we can live in the capacity that God has called us to live. We are good. Humanity was made in the image of God to radiate his glory and then also participate in the divine council, to be part of the decision-making process with the Elohim Yahweh as the head, with the other divine council members. But humanity, I believe, from the scriptures was connected and part of that. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, um, Isaiah, we read Isaiah, got pulled into the divine council and commissioned to speak the word of God. Moses challenges God's word, and then God relents and changes his mind. That makes total sense in the sense of a council deliberative process. Okay? So humanity was incredibly valuable, but we're also vulnerable. 
and that God made humanity mortal, which means we have the capacity for our bodies to decay, but we had an eternal connection to the tree of life. And so we were going to live forever because we were eating or communing with life. But God said we were made from dust, and the tragedy of that is that um, we uh, headed back to dust. But humanity is desperately dependent on intimate connection with God. And the tragedy of this rebellion in the garden was that there was a divorce from this connection. The word, and we're going to look at this in subsequent weeks, when God sends them out of the garden, the word sends them out is, is a word that means divorce. So God gets, humanity gets divorced from the connection to God, and now our access to the tree of life has been restricted, guarded by the angelic creatures, and now our bodies do return to the dust. And lastly, imperfect, that the capacity to make a mistake is part of God's design. He doesn't want us to sin, but he gave us the opportunity and the capacity both to make mistakes and also to make mistakes to such a degree that they're sin and missing the mark because freedom requires submission to something greater. And the law of love necessarily means that God must have children that can choose to know and love him. And so that is this week. And with that, I am going to have to cue the music and move on out because I have to leave in five minutes. So um, thank you all for jumping on. I know that is a lot. And um, you can go here. I'm just going to hang up with this and then refresh my cash in about 60 seconds. It'll be up on my website, adamschindler.com. You can go and do that um, and get the notes, uh, the PDFs from tonight, and then also uh, a, a look at all of the different pieces. Also, if you want to get connected with the study, you can text STUDY to 770-746-8388. And you can get the Zoom links and join us. Usually there is some... Q&A. But I so appreciate you all. Thank you so much for for coming out and joining me tonight. And uh, God bless you all. And uh, look for, I'll text you all about what I'm doing next week. I'll be doing some international travel. So next week may not happen, but we will see. So God bless you all. And we'll talk with you again. Bye-bye.